Gentlemen, good morning to you. I do hope that those of you who are Second Presbyterian types will plan to take in the missions conference this weekend. Uh, it is very important. Uh, God is so great that His rule and reign and His religion doesn't just apply to one nation. He's so great it applies to every nation. And one way in which we demonstrate His greatness is by the scope of our announcement of His greatness. And when we make that announcement over all the nations, we are indeed showing how great He is. So in terms of our worship of Him, uh, world uh, evangelization is essential uh, so that we can show how great He is. Please enjoy this weekend. We've got some great speakers. Uh, John Fain tomorrow night, Saturday morning, and then Ronnie Stevens will be here to preach on Sunday morning and Sunday night. And, uh, and uh, we have some other missionaries here. We have over 20 missionaries. Maybe some of them are here with us this morning. But we're just uh, so glad to have them all here. Guys, uh, we are in Deuteronomy 18. We had looked at Deuteronomy uh, 17 last week. And uh, we saw particularly uh, how the, uh, God, the Lord has called us to leadership. We saw last week how that applies to the civil realm. We looked particularly at judges and kings, noticing that he gives the office of judge first before he gives the office of king. That in Israel, unlike the surrounding Near Eastern nations, the kings were under the law of God. They were not sovereign rulers, autonomous sovereign rulers themselves. And this whole principle gave us our idea of the law before the king, lex rex, as Samuel Rutherford wrote it in the, in the 17th century, and had a lot to do with the American Revolution, actually, that we said that when a king uh, works outside the boundaries of law, the law of God in particular, he loses his legitimacy. And uh, we saw how important those offices are, and in looking at that, we saw the need for all of us to be engaged in the political realm. We need to be informed. We need to vote uh, intelligently, not just vote, but vote intelligently. Uh, we need to use our influence uh, through the political process. That means we need to join movements at times, and we need to put our voices with others. We need to contact our legislators and, and our uh, uh, executive branch people at, uh, at time to time. Uh, if you send a, a letter a week, pretty soon you will not be heard at all, but in those strategic moments we can communicate with them and try to get our message across. And then certainly we can run for office. And some of you need to be thinking about that. Various types of offices to run for in our city. The reason that a lot of men don't run for them is that when you do, you know you're going to get a lot of criticism. And you know that your name's going to be mud in the newspaper every once in a while. And who wants that? And you don't get paid very much uh, by comparison with what some of you could get paid. But a, a, a government official is called a civil servant. So servants don't make more than their masters. So it is a sacrifice for a, a lot of people when they run for office. Now, I know some people can make a career out of this thing and make, figure out how to really make it pay money. But for those who are running, uh, who are brothers in Christ, there is a sense of service there. So we need to be thinking about that, and we need to encourage the next generation to think about it. And part of what we need to do is to gather around in our groups and... and uh, figure out who we know that would be good at this. And we need to gather around them, offer them our support and encouragement, and encourage them to run. So you may not be uh, properly suited for it. 
but you probably know someone who's properly suited. And every once in a while, you, you need to think about the offices uh, that are important to our city and to our state and to our nation and encourage people to do that. We also saw last week how legislation is not uh, uh, simple. It's complex. And as believers, we want to be sure that we're aware of those complexities rather than giving just uh, simple answers and remedies to problems that have a lot of uh, implications to them. We looked at just a little bit of that at the very end. Well, today we're coming to two other offices that have more to do with what we would call, I suppose, the, the church uh, than, than the state. And, of course, you know, we, we, we saw last week how we uh, interpret the Bible uh, when it's given in a theocratic context and how we lift it out of a theocratic context and put it in a context of what we call diaspora, that is, the people of God in dispersion. We don't have a geopolitical entity, and we will not have one until Jesus Christ comes back in the new heavens and the new earth. So we're in diaspora, in dispersion uh, during this time. And we saw last time how you have to be careful when you lift the truth and biblical principles out of a theocratic historical context and put it into our context. Uh, you have to be careful how you do that. Well, one way in which we do this, we look at the theocratic offices, judge, king, priest, prophet, and we lift those out and put them into a uh, diasporic context, which means that our kings are civil authorities, but our priests are ecclesiastical authorities. And so we'll look at this in terms of state and church, what we call the separation of church and state. And frankly, when I look around the world, I'm very grateful to our fathers who did some fairly good theology there and separated the church and the state because we don't have a theocracy. Uh, the Puritans, some of them may have tried to do otherwise, but uh, the majority uh, eventually won out with what we know as the American Constitution. Well, let's look today at, at Deuteronomy 18, and we're going to see here some important lessons about how we take our relationship with, to G, uh, with Jesus Christ into the local church. And how that relationship with Jesus Christ, with God through Christ, compels us in our engagement in the local church. If we, if we were talking last week about the necessity for our engagement as brothers in the state and learning how to work with people who are not regenerate, who are not Christians, and working with them in community in the state with all of its sophistication and so forth. Well, we also look, what does our relationship with God have to do with our engagement in the church? And we'll see that these offices point to that reality. Let's look at chapter 18 and read the chapter, and then we'll, we'll make some comments. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as He promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. The first fruits of, how would you like that as your paycheck? All right, you get the stomach this week and, yeah. The first fruits of your grain, of your wine and your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires, to the place that the Lord will choose, and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. 
When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken... When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Amen. Gentlemen, uh, we must put God in our church membership. And the first thing I want you to notice in verses 1 through 8 is that we must provide for spiritual leadership. How do you put God, your relationship with God, in your church membership? Be sure you are advancing spiritual leadership in your churches. A lot of times, uh, guys, especially those with good ideas and great entrepreneurial skills and men who like to get see, thing, uh, see things get done, they get tired of the church. Church is too slow. Clergy, clergy birds are forever figuring out what's going to make somebody mad. You can't get them to make a decision. Church boards in their meetings are boring. I'm just going to go start something on my own. And, when you, uh, and we believe in starting things on your own. We appreciate all the ministries here in town. But gentlemen, if you do that at the expense of your local church, you've abandoned the, the primary institution that God has ordained. He's ordained the church. He has chosen the temple in Jerusalem. He has put his name there at that temple. He has appointed a priesthood for that temple. And he has appointed you to pay for it. Uh, that's the order that he has ordained. And when the New Testament comes along, what does the apostle say? You are the temple. Who's you? The church. So, God has appointed the church. That's where he puts his name. That's where sacrifices of praise are to be offered. That's where the gifts are to be brought. Because why? That's where the Levites are to do the teaching. Now, Levites, priests, although the word priest is not a New Testament word for clergy, uh, the word in the New Testament, priest, is used for Jesus Christ, the great high priest, or for everybody in the church. Uh, but this gives us some very good lessons about 
uh, how we should relate to clergy. And what you have here is, first of all, that we must provide for spiritual leadership. And notice the clergy, they must not be financially motivated. We must be sure that the the clergy are are men and women uh, who are not financially motivated. Some of you believe that men only should be clergy, and some of you have men and women as clergy, whichever way it is. Their motivation is not to be financial. Now, Peter brings up the same thing. The reason I mentioned this text, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, and it's very important. Peter says, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God. So the elders are to shepherd the flock. That's what an elder does. And then he says, not only must you shepherd them, but you must do it with particular motivations. Nobody's going to do it just because they have to. If you're doing it, you must do it because you want to. That's the only way you can do it and be effective. If you don't want to do it, then don't do it. If someone asks you to be an elder or a shepherd in the church or a pastor, don't do it if you don't want to do it. Because you would be disobedient to the Lord to do it out of mere or sheer duty. Secondly, Peter says, and it's not for financial gain, not to be eager for money. So it has nothing to do with, oh, you know what, I I need to be an elder, or I deserve to be an elder, or I need my name to be on the bulletin as an elder. It'll help my name in the community. has nothing to do with that. That's the opposite of pastoral leadership. Or pastors uh, who are so concerned about their prestige or the size church they're pastoring or the buildings that their people meet in and what it says about their personal reputation. I had a person in the previous church that I served uh, come visit me one time. He didn't know me very well, but he'd, he'd, we, our paths had crossed some time in history, and he was, he was a uh, clergyman. He came to see me, and I just remember he said, boy, this is a really nice building you have here. This must be a wealthy church. It must be really nice to... I thought, you know what? This man needs to get out of the ministry as soon as possible. Any hint of that, of looking at things that way, is an abomination. It corrupts the ministry. And if you're looking at your ministry as possibilities for ways to make money or to make prestige or to have power or influence, anything that advances your own personal interests, it is an abomination before the Lord. You need to repent of it. And I'd suggest you do it right here this morning. For those of you who are in lay leadership, think about your motives. And I think this text is showing us above all, look, the the priests did not have property. Now, they had some cities that they were given, and they had to pasture land around it. But unlike all the, other, all, all the other Israelites, they were not given family plots. You know, you had the Ephraimites. They had their whole region. They divided up according to clans, and everybody had their farm out there. The Levites didn't have that. And the Levites, unlike the Egyptian priests, were not to be religious leaders who could manipulate through economic power. The Egyptian priests in the Egyptian religion, they owned lots of property and had tremendous power. And these slaves knew it, these Israelite slaves. They're coming out of Egypt. And Moses says to them, your priests are not going to be like that. They're not going to manipulate. And they're not going to grab for political power or economic power like the pagan priests did. These are going to be a different group of people. They're going to be unlanded. And that's very important for us who are, who are in ministry leadership right now. Now, some of you, well, most of you, you have full-time jobs in, in the, what we call the secular realm, and your ministries are volunteer. So maybe you think it's a little easier for you, and it is. 
Because we know everything that you're doing is volunteer. In fact, it's costing you time and money every time you serve. But you have to still be very careful about the motives for which you serve. And i tell you how you can check yourself out. If the group around you wants to have someone else do the ministry you're doing, how easy is it to fire you? How quickly are you training someone else to take your place so that you can go on and serve somewhere else? How quick are you to push someone else forward in ministry positions that have influence and power and prestige, and you can work behind the scenes to help them do that? You know, when you get to be about 60, maybe a little before that, you know, everything you do, you ought to have somebody with you because <laughs> you probably aren't going to be around very long. You know, get somebody with you. Be sure you're training somebody up. It's been interesting to see in our, our own church here how oftentimes those of you who are the 60 crowd, you'll say, yeah, I'll do that, but only as vice chairman. Give me a 45-year-old who will be the chairman, and I'll be the vice chairman. I love to see those 60-year-old vice chairmen. And what do they become? They become the consultants. Uh, they become the guys who are lifting up and pushing people up, not looking for anything in themselves. They want to build it into other people, and they want to serve. So they're still giving their time and their money and their resources, their energy, their heart, their prayers but they're doing it as servants. That's what is here. They were not to be, they shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. The phrase you find over and over again is, the Lord God will be their inheritance. The privilege the priests have of drawing near to the Lord in the temple and serving Him day after day and week after week, that's a privilege. And that will be their inheritance. And that will be enough. That will be enough joy for them. And they don't have to have these, these other things, and they shouldn't be uh, trying to grab for them. So secondly, if you look at verses 3 through 5, you'll see that, however, they must be supported by the people. Here's where you come in. If you're a layperson, these people are not to be financially motivated. They're not in it because they think they can make a good living this way. They have another motivation. Their inheritance is the Lord. Their, their motivation is they get more of Him. And I have to say, as a full-time Christian worker, that is really true. That is the joy of it. I do feel sorry for the rest of you guys. Uh, I get to do this all the time. You pay me to study the Bible. Can you imagine that? You pay me to talk about it. I can't believe this. I mean, it's such a deal. I feel like I'm ripping you off every week. Uh, and I, you know, I, I don't like to tell you too often because you'll probably get the idea here soon. But there is an inheritance that comes to someone who's a Christian worker. And I, honestly, I'm, I'm enjoying it with my children and grandchildren as well. I mean, how many of you all get to baptize your grandchildren or get to baptize your children? Man, alive. It's great. But you've got to support me. <laughs> Look at this now. The priests were not to be to, uh, they were not to have their own land. But that didn't mean they were to be put into poverty. Now, Israel did that every once in a while. They, they, they ignored their preachers, their Levites, and God got ticked off about it. So just, you watch yourself now. Uh, he got ticked off about it, and the reason was, if you don't pay your preachers, they've got to go out and get a second job. And therefore, they're not going to study the Bible, and they're not going to do it themselves to your spiritual health, and therefore, you're going to decline. So you just end up shooting yourself in the foot. So the point is not that they're put into poverty. Here's the point. They're put into dependence. They're put into dependence. Now, some of you who worked uh, uh, in a real job <laughs> for a while, 
and then went into full-time Christian ministry, the hardest thing for you was to be dependent. I mean, I know because I did it. You know, I, I was working for a corporation, and then next thing I know, I'm in blue jeans and in seminary, and then I get out and I'm asking people for money. I mean, it, it makes a beggar out of you. And so you end up being dependent. That is the point. And here's how it's working. Israel, God teaches Israel, hey, guys, you're completely dependent upon me. If I don't send rain, you're not going to eat. If I don't, if I don't de destroy your enemies, you're not going to live. You're completely dependent upon me. Now, I'm going to give you somebody who will just model that for you just a little bit called Levites. And you're going to be like God to them. They're going to be dependent upon you. So they're going to depend upon you just like you're dependent upon me. And you're going to bless them just like I bless you. You see, that's, that's the way the relationship is set up. So it's almost like Levites kind of a tithe of all the people to provide this sort of model as well as to serve the people spiritually. Now, there are two things the Levites did primarily. Primarily, they served the sanctuary, whether it was the tabernacle as in the days here in Moses' day or the temple some years later that was established in Jerusalem. That was... One of their primary functions was to serve the Lord on His holy hill and in His holy place. And they would be put on rotation to do that. In other words, if you were a, a priest out in the boonies, you would get one week probably out of your life when you would be put into course and you would serve for a whole week in the holy place. Now, you wouldn't go in the holy of holies. Only the high priest goes in there once a year. But you get to go in the holy place and serve there every day for a week. And that would be the highlight of your priestly experience, the highlight of your life. So they would serve in the sanctuary. The second main job they had was to teach the Bible. Now, prophets would speak forth the word of God infallibly, but the Levites would take what was spoken and then they would teach the people what it means. And so you find, for example, in the day of Ezra, that Ezra would preach and then the Levites would go out among the people. They were all gathered there, hundreds and hundreds of them. And the Levites would go out probably creating small groups, just like we do after Amen. They would, the, uh, Ezra would teach. They'd break into small groups, and the Levites would teach in the small groups. Now, boys, here's what it means. And so the Levites were teachers. Now, they did other things. They also uh, were participating with the judges on certain cases, especially cases that had to do with the uh, ritual laws of Israel. But their primary purposes were to serve the sanctuary and to teach. And what God is saying is, now you guys support them. And you'll see specific rules in Leviticus 7 and 18 that flesh out a little bit of what's given there. But if you turn to the New Testament, I've listed three verses here that show that Paul very consciously picked up on this language out of the Old Testament. It's warm in here. Did you notice that? Paul picks up on this language in the Old Testament and he applies it to the New Testament. And he says, this is the way you're to deal with those who are teaching you now. They are providing for you that ministry. So, gentlemen, you want to be sure that wherever you're serving, that you're encouraging the men and women around you to gather together and be sure that proper ministry is being provided for your children, for your teenagers and college students, your young adults, and your older adults. And all those groups are getting adequate Levitical ministry. Now, a lot, most of that ministry is carried out by you, lay people. Most of the ministry in the church is carried out by volunteers who never paid anything for it. But volunteers need to be resourced. 
And if your church is large enough, you want to be able to pay a pastor full-time who will resource you as one of those Levitical teachers who goes out into the small groups and teaches the people the meaning of the Word. And you want to be sure in your church that's being done. If it's not, you have the same responsibility there that you have in the state to influence legislation and to influence the way the state is governed and the city is mayored and all the rest. So get involved in your churches. Be sure that you're building relationships there, that you're regularly involved there, so that you have a voice there and you're growing in stature with God and man. That is, you're growing in your favor with God, you're growing in your favor with man, and you have influence. And you can take the Word of God and help it be practiced in the place where you are. And there are many uh, reasons why you'll, you'll find difficulty with that. Thirdly, Notice in verse 6 through 8, it says 82, but it's 8. Uh, these clergy must have parity. Now, this is very interesting and a challenge for our own day. But you'll notice that he says to them here, whether these priests or these Levites are living in Jerusalem, the future city of God, or they're out in one of these 48 cities that the Levites will own, or they're in the other cities, no matter where they are. They can come to Jerusalem and serve anytime they want to. They're sort of in the clergy band. And when they come, they get an equal portion to eat with the priests who live there all the time. So what you see is that, yeah, you know, you may have your big, your big steeple priests downtown Jerusalem, but when these country parish clergy come into town, they're to be treated with respect like everybody else. And it's interesting, when you turn to the New Testament, you look at Acts chapter 15, for example, and there you have a general assembly. And you have all the apostles submitting to each other. And they have to argue with each other, and they have to gain consensus. And the apostle Paul doesn't just come and say, let me tell you how it is. No, Paul says, let me tell you what's been happening in my ministry. Let me tell you what my view of this is. And then James arises and speaks. And they come to a generally a, a consensus, consensual decision. So even the Apostle Paul, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. He's basically saying that there are other apostles, and I must learn to submit to them. And frankly, in the American model, we get these huge churches with pastors who ha have enormous influence and power, and sometimes they get themselves shielded off, and they really need brothers who are in their lives, and they need some experience where they are in peer relationships. If your pastor is in a large church, you can just ask him what someone asked me this week, who do you account to? Who knows you well? What regular meetings do you have in your life with someone who has a peer ministry like yours? Who are you praying with? Who are you talking to when you have a problem? When you get angry, who do you confess that to? Uh, you can ask your pastor that and you'll be doing him a favor. But ask him nicely. They must have parity. There must be a sense of shared ministry. So it doesn't matter how big and important your ministry is or your job your role in this community. Brothers, you all need that. doesn't matter how important you are. doesn't matter whether you have 500 employees and they all think you're a demigod. You know you're not. And maybe they are not in a position to be your accountability partners, but who is? Is there anybody that can talk to you honestly and correct you nicely? Can anybody do that in your life? Your wife certainly hopes so, because she can't. So you need parity. You're, you're the priest's. The Bible says, the New Testament says, we're all the priests. So now we are the Levites. We have parity with each other. Can you prove it by the way that we live together? I believe that's what's being said here. And of course, that parity 
runs across all denominational lines. It runs across all racial lines and socioeconomic lines. Do you think that you're more important or your opinion has more weight because your church has more money than the pastor in some other church or the elder who has some other job? If someone has spiritual leadership in this city, no matter how small the church is or how impoverished that community is, we have parity with them. We're all in the same business as Levites together. Okay, now let's turn secondly to verses 9 through 14. And here you get a scorcher because we are taught about alien forms of spiritual leadership and that we must reject them. We must reject alien forms of spiritual leadership. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. And there's kind of the heading of it, the abominable practices of these nations. And of course, in this text, uh, later on in verse, uh, in verse uh, 13, yes, uh, verse 14, uh, these nations that you're dispossessing, why do you think you're dispossessing them? Because you are God's arm of judgment to dispossess them. Dispossess them for what? For these very abominable practices. And then you go in there, and instead of dispossessing them and cleaning this mess up, you become just like them. And gentlemen, it's the same way today. We're supposed to be transforming the world around us through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. What happens often, instead of doing that with all the burdens that come upon us when we attempt it, we become more and more like the very religious practices that are to be dispossessed in the land around us. So it's always been a problem, and he's saying to them here, be very careful about this. First of all, the abominable sacrifices. Look at the lengths to which people will go to try to manipulate their gods, to get the attention of their whimsical, capricious gods. They will even offer their own children in the fire. Moloch was a god among these pagans who seemed to delight in a burnt sacrifice of one's own son. It's, it's unthinkable, isn't it? But this is the lengths to which people will go in order to accomplish something that almost every human being wants to accomplish. They want to accomplish the ability to get power over the invisible powers around us. You know, uh, no matter where you live and what culture you grew up in, you're aware of some non-material beings. And if you go into the most primitive parts of the world, you'll find that they're very aware of spirits and the spirit world. And it's scary. And it scares us and we want control over it. And so we're looking into that spirit world to see what we can do to gain control of it because we're scared of it. We want to protect ourselves. We don't want to be harmed by somebody else who can manipulate the spirits against us. This is a kind of a fundamental human concern, and you may not have thought about it because maybe you were, you were brought up in a Christian environment. You were taught about the Lord who's sovereign and rules all the spirits of the devil and all of his minions, and you never found yourself fearful. But if you don't have the gospel, believe me, you are fearful. And people want to know also about the future. Why? They want to be able to control the future. They're afraid of the future. And if they can tie into some sort of spirits out there who might know something about the future, they want to get whatever information they can out of those spirits. 
And they also want to know the answers to the meaning of life. And they have some idea that perhaps human existence can be explained in part by the existence of these spiritual beings. And they also want guidance for how to live their lives. And so they'll look to the stars and read the astrology section in the newspaper because they're looking for some thing that will show them that there's direction and meaning in their lives and they can know a little bit something about the future and get a little bit of encouragement or a little bit of warning because they're afraid. This is just basic human nature. Now what happens is that by nature we'll do whatever we need to do to get a hold of this information, to get control of these powers, and to ward off any damage that could come to us or our families. And that is a lot of the motive behind pagan religion. If you've been to India, you'll, you'll find this with their 300 million gods. And walking down the Ganges, by the banks of the Ganges River, you'll see these high priests who are going through their incantations and lighting their candles and, and people sitting down next to them and getting their ministry to get a hold of these gods and manipulate them, to have these gods give them something or to care for something or to not hurt them. Tremendous fear. You can see it in pagan. Uh, India is probably the best illustration of a pagan uh, religious world. And that's just the way it was here in Palestine. And Moses is saying to these people, do not participate in these abominable practices. They are practices that are built upon atheism. The non-existence of God. The God that you've been introduced to at Mount Sinai. The only reason you're participating in these is because you don't believe in the God of Sinai. And so when you participate in the rabbit's foot hanging across your, your rearview mirror, you're just simply saying, well, you know, knock on wood, uh, you know, rabbit foot, pull out all these special coins and things you got in your pocket, these good luck charms. Uh, it's incredible. God's not enough. You say, I'm just covering all my bases. You know? Four-leaf clover in your wallet, you know. Oh, I found this in Ireland, you know. Get baptized in the Jordan because your baptism here wasn't good enough. Some of you did that. We're always looking for these good luck charms. Why? Because we're afraid. We want good luck. Because God's not enough. That's where it's coming from. Moses says in the great words of Bob Newhart, Stop it. <laughs> That's Bob Newhart's counseling. He just said, I got two words. Stop it. And that's what Moses is saying. Stop it. You're just demonstrating your faithlessness. You're demonstrating that you didn't hear a thing at Sinai. And what we'd be saying is you didn't hear a thing in the gospel about a resurrected Jesus Christ who stands in glory over this universe and who has orchestrated everything and is governing every detail in your life to bring you to the most glorious end your mind could possibly imagine. He's already got it in his hands. Throw away the rabbit's foot. You don't need it. That's what Moses is saying. Don't practice these things. They, they're just simply superstitions. And look at 10, verse 10. Abominable superstitions. People who practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens. Now, guys, I don't mean to be a moralistic fundamentalist. You know, if you ever talk to a fortune teller, now you're cursed and all that kind of stuff. And I do believe that, you know, there's silly little games sometimes people can play. But when you really are going to a fortune teller to 
get them to look at your palm and tell you where your life is going. Are you an idiot or something? Uh, I mean, the Bible gives you the future. The Bible tells you your fortune. I don't need your palm. I need your pocket New Testament. Give it to me. And I'll open it up and I'll show you your future. So knock it off. When you go to the newspaper and you go to the astrology section, maybe it's always just idle curiosity. But you know what? If there's any danger in your mind of actually believing that rubbish, then you could just tear that, just take that section and put it in the trash can and now read your newspaper. Just get away from all those superstitions. And Christians add superstitions to the Christian faith. What do you do when you add something that's not in the Bible to your faith? You, you know, for example, when you die, you're going to be like an angel just floating around playing a harp. Where do you get that? I don't know, some fairy tale. You just added it to the Bible. When you add superstitions, what do you do? You take away the substance of God's revelation. And we're going to see that because this section comes right before the next section where God is talking about how you are going to know the future and how you are going to know who you are and how you are going to know what God thinks of you. He has not left you without guidance. He's not left you without signs for the days ahead. He's not left you without that. But you can't have that if you're holding on to this. So get rid of the superstitions. And then uh, thirdly, you see that he talks about the abominable religious practice, the abominable religion. A sorcerer, a charmer, a medium, a necromancer. A necromancer is just one who calls up dead people. There you go. God's not good enough. Let's go get a dead person. <coughs> and I tell you what, these people scare me to death. <coughs> I'm not so sure but what some of those dead people will come back and haunt you. I don't know. Maybe they do call them up. I don't know. I don't have to have the answer to that. I don't care. I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, I have a live Lord Jesus Christ who speaks to me. Why do I want to talk to a dead sinner? Let's just leave him dead. If he's a believer, I'll see him later in his glorified state. I'll talk to him then and have a great conversation. Right now, I want to talk to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give me my Savior. And he's enough. And his word for me is enough. Get your focus, gentlemen. And in order to get your focus, you're going to have to let go of some stuff, some other methods that you have, superstitions, religious practices. And you find in Colossians chapter 2, I mentioned that text here, Paul's dealing with that in the church in Colossae. These people have taken their Christian faith and wound it all up synergistically with pagan practices and Judaistic practices and everything else. And they've got this hodgepodge. And he says, clean that mess up. You want the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and let your worship come from the gospel that frees you from the burdens of all these ritualistic practices and hocus-pocus and magic, magical rites whereby you think you're getting blessed. And get back to the gospel. There's where the blessing is. Believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's where every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is contained. There is nothing else. There is no blessing anywhere else. It's all in Christ and it comes through faith in the gospel. So be done with your other superstitious approaches to try to get a little luck along the way. And then, verses 12 through 14, that is wood, isn't it? Well, I sure hope so.
Verses 12 through 14, the abominable forgetfulness. What do we forget? We forget two things in verses 12 through 14. First of all, we forget these abominations are the reasons that we've seen nation after nation be destroyed. Whether it's the Roman Empire, or it's the Soviet Empire, or it's the Nazi Empire, or probably one day the American Empire. They all fall apart because of these abominable practices of trusting in one's own strength, one's own magic, one's own ways of discerning guidance instead of looking to the Lord. And he says, you've forgotten something. You're taking out these nations not because you're so great, but because I'm using you, you tiny little nation that needs a lot of help. I'm using you to dispossess them because they did these things. So you forget that. Here's the second thing you forget. The last verse in this section, I've got something different for you. But as for you, look at that, those words. But as for you, you find that in 1 Timothy over and over again. Paul says to Timothy, look, these people are doing all kinds of stuff around you. Don't worry about it. But as for you, you're a man of righteousness. Here's the way you're supposed to live. And you've forgotten that you have a calling to be entirely different from the people around you. So you're taking on their practices because you don't want to be weird. But you've forgotten something. You're supposed to be weird. You're supposed to be different in some righteous and just and holy ways. So there's an abominable forgetfulness among men of God that these practices lead to destruction and that we were called to be different. Now, how were we called to be different? That leads us to the last section. Look at verses 15 through 22, and we see that we must follow godly spiritual leadership. We don't follow these other practices. We follow God's practices. We do it His way. Well, what is his way? Well, his way is this, before we get into these details in this section. His way is that he raises up a prophet. He puts his word in that prophet's mouth. And he teaches us authoritatively through that prophet about who we are, who God is, how we're to live, and how it's all going to end up. Now, gentlemen, what else do you want to know? Who you are, who God is, how to live your life, and how it's all going to end up. That's God's method. He authoritatively, infallibly, blessedly, in a fatherly way, tells us what we need to know as His sons to carry out the kingdom work. That's His method. And it's very different from the method of the nations around you who are trying to discern reality, get guidance, and get control of the spiritual world in another way. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have control of the spiritual world. And there are some Christian men who walk in terror of what demons and the devil can do to you. Look, the devil, if the Lord allows him, can destroy you in a moment. He's awesome in power. If you didn't have Christ, of course you should be terrified of him. But in Christ, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And the devil is terrified of Jesus Christ. Terrified of him. And he has, the devil has no doubt of Jesus' total, sovereign, universal power over things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The devil has no question about it. And he must do everything that the sovereign king, Lord Jesus Christ, tells him to do. And when your faith is in Christ, you're a prince in the kingdom. And the devil is also terrified of you as long as you're in Christ. Not because of you, 
but because of Christ, your older brother, who happens to be on the throne and your royalty with it. So remember who you are, and because of that now royal relationship we have with God, we are the Levites, and He is our inheritance and our treasure. Now we have all that we need for life and godliness. Now look, first of all, these folks are raised up by God. The Lord your God will raise up for you someone. And if you look in the New Testament, you not only have apostles who are raised up for us. We have the, pro the churches built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. These are people, men whom God raised up with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. He raised them all up. Now we know that. The prophets and the apostles were the organs of revelation. They're the ones who tell us how to live. They're the ones who tell us who God is. They're the ones who tell us how it's all going to turn out. They predict the future for us. And they correct us when we go wrong, all the rest. But notice in Ephesians 4 and Acts chapter 20 that God also raises up people who are not organs of revelation or of infallible revelation. He raises up pastors and teachers. In Acts 20, Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, these are the flocks of whom God the Holy Spirit made you overseers. So the Spirit is still at work. Now, we can, we're, you, know, you, can, you can have a lousy elder and a lousy pastor, and sometimes you need to fire a pastor, okay? So you're not firing the Holy Spirit if you fire a pastor. Now, if you fired Paul, you'd be in, you'd be in bad shape because he was an infallible communicator of the Word of God. But if you fire me, it may be the wisest thing you ever did in your life as long as you do it to promote the Lordship and the message of Jesus Christ. But even now in our day, in it, through its imperfect process, elections and churches and all the rest, God is raising up spiritual leaders in this very room. He is at work doing that. And we must realize He's taking the initiative to do it. He raises up leaders for the people He loves. He always does that. Secondly, notice what they'll be like. They will be like Moses. Not like Mike. They'll be like Moses. A prophet like me. Isn't that wonderful? And so what you have is a person of character. How do you know when God is raising up a leader in your midst? Look at his character, first of all. Can you see anything in his character that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit? Can you see anything in his character that approximates 1 Timothy chapter 3, the description for an elder or a deacon, or Titus chapter 1? Or Acts chapter 6, the description of a deacon. Do you see any of those qualities? Well, if you see those qualities in a man, you can rest assured God is probably raising up a leader for you. That's what he does. That's the way he does it. And that's their first indicator. They're like Moses. What was Moses like? Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. So a proud man who likes to talk about his spiritual accomplishments or his leadership skills or his great feats throughout the weeks, and uses those over and over again as his illustrations, is probably not the man you're talking about because we're talking about a man who is humble like Moses. Moses was a man who was willing to lead even when it was difficult. He was willing to confront evil, wasn't he? When, they, when, they, when his brother helped them build the golden calf, Moses was willing to stand against his own brother and even against his own sister, and he was willing to even die and then to top it all off, when God wanted to destroy the Israelites, Moses came in between them and said, Lord, if you take them out of the book, you can take me out too. And then argued with the Lord, hey, you put your name on these people, you're going to mess up your reputation. And when you've got a man like that, 
You've got a man who may be ready to be a spiritual leader. Thirdly, they have authority. It is to him you shall listen. So when God raises up someone, we need to listen to them. Even when they're fallible professors of the gospel, we need to be sure that we're listening to them. When they speak, we have our Bibles open in front of us. And if what they say is in accord with the Bible, we listen. We listen to them as we would to Christ in that sense. That if they are speaking the word of Christ in accord with the word, by the power of the Spirit, we receive that as we do with Christ. So you may hear a boring sermon on Sunday, but you're listening to it carefully. You're listening for Christ in it. And you're listening with your Bible on your lap. And when that guy in a boring way says something that comports with the Bible and you apply it to your life, you're hearing the word of Christ, brothers. And you need to listen to it. Fourthly, they will speak God's word. How will you know that you have, have the leader? He doesn't tell you what he thinks about everything. He doesn't just come up with some nice opinions or politically give you the politically correct idea on something or to give you the popular idea on something. But you can hear it, can't you? If you have someone who's leading, there's, a, there's another drummer in his life. A spiritual leader has another drummer. You, can, you know that he's marching to another drummer. It's not the drum of the world. There's, he's getting orders from another place. He comes from another place in his thinking. He's always got an angle on things. Frankly, it's the angle of the Bible. He doesn't put it that way in those words, but that's how he thinks, and you can feel it. Uh, there's, there's a, he speaks God's word, and you notice the implications. False listeners will be punished. Whoever will not listen, I will require it of him. So as, Mark says in, or as Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, be careful how you hear. And what does he mean in Mark 4? He gives the parable of the four soils there, and then he says, be careful how you hear. Which of the four soils are you? And he says, he who has, more will be given. That is, when you put something into practice, you'll get more of the word. So be careful how you hear. You don't really hear something and keep it until you practice it. That's when you keep the word. So be careful. If you don't, it will be required of you. Secondly, false prophets will be punished. And thirdly, you're going to have to be discerning. He says here, if you say in your heart, how may we know? Well, he says, if somebody predicts something, if a prophet predicts something and doesn't come true, well, you know that's a false prophet. He must die. You say, well, does that mean then if he gives the truth, if he gives a prophecy and it becomes true, he's a true prophet? Sorry, not necessarily. Because we're told in the Bible that false prophets will work signs and miracles. Sometimes they will even predict the future and get it right. So how do I tell? Well, go back to verse 15 they will be like Moses. And now we have the New Testament canon. You have a resurrected Jesus Christ. Does that spiritual leader give honor to Jesus Christ? Does the spiritual leader lead in accord with the Scriptures? Is he accountable to repentance in the Scriptures? Or is he always making excuses that somehow he's a special exception? Is he modeling repentance and faith in his life? Is he really like Moses? Now, ultimately, gentlemen, this chapter and the one before it are precious, and I've got two minutes to tell you why. Because we know the ultimate purpose of these chapters is to tell us something absolutely glorious about the future of redemption history. In Israel, you notice these offices are separate. Judge, king, priest, prophet. Every once in a while, there would be a unique figure who would combine one or two of the offices. For example, Melchizedek, the ancient figure in Genesis, 
14, combined priesthood with kingship. He was a priestly king. You get to to Zechariah and he predicts the priest king that one day will come. One day, they say, there will be someone so great that God will appoint for him to unite the offices. The reason the offices are not united is separation of powers because we don't trust sinful human beings, not even Moses. Now Moses was king and prophet. Here he's in 18, he's shown to be a prophet. He was also a king. But he wasn't a priest. Aaron was the priest. So great men will once in a while combine two offices, but you never have more than two. One day there's going to come someone who can combine all the offices. He'll be so great and so trustworthy, we will combine all the offices in him. And all these offices, except for a judge, prophet, priest, and king, are done by anointing. We anoint with oil. A king, a prophet, a priest. They're all anointed offices. And one day there'll come one who will be anointed with all offices. Now, gentlemen, that's exactly who Christ is. And in in addition to that, prophet, priest, and king, he is also the judge. He takes chapter 17, he takes chapter 18, he takes the entire ministry of God for his people into his own being. Gentlemen, he is exalted. He is great. He is the Lord of all. He combines everything that God ever would do for us. It's all in Christ. Now, lastly, what does Christ do when He calls us to follow Him? We're told in Acts that in Antioch, the Christians were first called Christians. What does Christianos mean? It means little anointed one, little Messiah. So guess who else is anointed with prophet, priest, and king, and judge? You. You're a little little M. He's the big M. He's the Messiah incorporating everything into himself. But because, like a vine with its branches, he is organically in your life, he is exercising the offices of judge and king and priest and prophet through men who go out that door today into that world. It's absolutely phenomenal that we carry now in our lives the office of priest as we offer sacrifices of praise to Him in His holy temple and as we teach others the Word of God. We're the prophets because He's given us His Word and by the power of the Spirit, we go out and apply it today wherever we are. We're His prophets and we are His kings because we're the ones now who are exercising leadership in the civil world and in the ecclesiastical world and we are gaining dominion for the Lord Jesus Christ through our little messianic work. And we are the judges who now judge angels one day but now judging the earth with all discernment because we have the mind of Christ. I call that an exciting life. Who needs a dead person to come up and tell you what the future beholds for you? You're kings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great manner in which you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms through your one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you're making us like him. May we go and serve with boldness and humility. May we serve with joy and meekness. May we be the men you made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you.